Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to The God Solution Show, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled that you're tuned back in. I hope you've been enjoying our interview with Dr. Fuzz Rana of Reasons to Believe, a biochemist. This week, we're going to be talking to Dr. Jeff Zwierink, who also serves with Reasons to Believe. He's an astrophysicist, and we're going to be talking to him a little bit about the recent corroboration or evidence for gravitational waves. It's in the news, and I thought it'd be good to talk to an expert in this field about this topic. Well, anyway, Dr. Zwierink is a Ph.D. astrophysicist. He got his Ph.D. from Iowa State University. He's co-authored more than 30 academic journal articles. He also authored the book, Who's Afraid of the Multiverse? He is a part-time faculty member with a research position at UCLA, and he is research scholar at Reasons to Believe. He's also a speaker and apologist and all that. Well, without any further ado, he is the guy you want to talk to about gravitational waves. In fact, he was on Fox News last week talking about this, so here's our chance to talk to him as well. Welcome to the God Solution Show, Dr. Jeff Zwierink. Good to be here, Nate. Hey, I'm glad to have you on the show. I recently saw you on Fox News talking about gravitational waves. Of course, many people saw that that was in the news the last few weeks, and it's kind of a big deal, right? It really is a big deal. I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, Einstein, when he developed his theory of relativity right at 100 years ago, seemed to predict that there were these gravitational waves. And so for probably the last 40, 50 years, we've been looking for them, and we finally found them. (laughs) Amazing. So gravity waves uh, from black holes have been detected. What does that really mean, and why is it so important? Well, one of the one of the big reasons it's important is that it's a confirmation of Einstein's theory of relativity. Now, I mean, in all honesty, nobody really thought it was wrong or that there was a problem with it, and so so that's not the big thing. the The cool or the 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 big implication is that this gives us a new way to look at the universe that we didn't have before. And so we just expect that we're going to, or you know, we're going to find lots of new stuff that we just didn't even know to look for. I mean, even this first discovery, you know, which we'll probably unpack it a little bit, was the discovery of two black holes, the masses of which we didn't even know that there were black holes that size. So it told us something about the universe that we had no other way of finding out. Can you explain just briefly a little bit about the scope of what was going on here, the investigation? Um, this study, what did this entail? Yeah, so so just a little bit of the science background that's important is that uh, when a when mass is in space, what Einstein's theory of relativity says is that it warps the very fabric of space, and so that's where that's how you, that's how gravity is explained in in uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity. But what that means is that if you've got two very dense objects, so they've got a very strong gravitational field, that as those objects orbit about one another, they can actually create ripples in the fabric of space. And so these ripples 
carry away energy from the system. They propagate throughout the universe. And like I said, this is just something that we that Einstein's theory predicted, but we've never been able to measure. And so, uh, in this particular instance, you've got these two black holes which have these very strong gravitational fields, and as they orbit about one another, they're warping the fabric of space-time so much that they're causing these ripples in the fabric of space-time that carries energy away, and ultimately that causes these two black holes to coalesce into one. And so we've got these these instruments that scientists have built, one's in uh, Livingston, Louisiana, one's in Hanford, Washington, that can measure the very small ripples, these waves that are running through space-time, and give us information about what actually happened back at these two black holes. Pretty incredible. Do you think this discovery will garner the Nobel Prize? In my honest opinion, I'd be surprised if they don't didn't get the Nobel Prize. I mean, you know, there there are some obvious some follow-ups and to make sure that the you know, if this was just one of then or one event and we never see it replicated, there'd be some weird things. So there's still some more research that needs to go into this, but I fully expect that we're gonna find more of these objects and then eventually the, the leaders of the team are going to they're going to receive the Nobel Prize for this. It is that that scope of a scientific discovery. Amazing, quite amazing. Too bad Einstein's not around to see it. <laughs> it really is. You know, he got to see some of the confirmation of his theory yeah. and some pretty impressive things back then. But this is one of those ones. That, as as I understand the history of it, you know, he he recognized when he first produced his theories of general or theory of general relativity that it uh, you'd get these gravitational waves, but then you know, but so over the next couple of decades, he kind of had there was this ongoing debate as to whether it would actually they actually existed or not. And so, even he had some uncertainty about whether they existed or not. And so, it would have been nice for him to have actually seen him seen the the theory vindicated. But he did get to see quite a bit of it vindicated while he was alive. <laughs> Absolutely. So that being said. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the Big Bang. Now, the second I say that on a Christian show, probably some of the listeners are feeling a little bit queasy about it. I'll just start off with a story of my own. Back when I was in college, and I did a chemistry degree, about 14 years ago I graduated, and while I was in college, I remember after a class that I was in, somebody knew I was a creationist, and they handed me a picture of the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, and they said, here's evidence of the Big Bang. At least that's, you know, how they presented it to me. And I remember as a student feeling like I got stabbed in the gut because I thought, well, here's like evidence against creation, the Big Bang. Because I'd always been taught the two were irreconcilable, right, that the Big Bang was evidence against creation. In fact, even this last week we were doing a forum on campus and I was talking about the beginning of the universe and how uh, – Cosmologically, we know that the universe began to exist a finite time ago, and that's evidence of a cause greater than itself. And somebody said, no way, the Big Bang. You know, the Big Bang started it. So I think there's this this misconception that the Big Bang is antithetical to the existence of God. So what's going on with this theory, and how does that relate to the Big Bang, and how does that relate to creation? Very good. Let, let me. I'm going to kind of hit that question from the backside, and I need to give a little bit of uh, intro to get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's fascinating is when you look at Einstein's theory of general relativity. One of the reasons, or one of the primary philosophical reasons, he developed his theory was a recognition that, you know, in the early 1900s, as we could describe the physics that we knew, depending on how you move through the universe 
the laws of physics changed. And that bothered him. He, he thought there ought to, the, the laws of physics ought to look the same no matter where you are, no matter when you exist, and no matter how you're moving. And so he set about developing a theory where the laws of physics were constant no matter what was going on with the observer. And the, the outcome of that is, you know, the special relativity and then ultimately general relativity when you get into dealing with gravitational forces. Now, when you look at what Scripture describes of the universe, um, one of the things that is abundantly clear is that uh, God or the scriptures describe a universe that is constant and reliable. You know, one of the passages that uh, just explicitly spells that out is in Jeremiah 33, where the prophet Jeremiah is prophesying to the nation of Israel and saying, you know, God says that if my covenant for day and night stand not and the fixed patterns of heaven are not true, then I will break my covenant with the nation of Israel. Another way of saying that is that if the heavens don't behave reliably, then you can doubt that I'm going to keep my promises. Well, you know, the, the, the patterns of day and night, the fixed patterns of the heavens, those are, the, the scientific way of talking about that is the laws of physics. That's what determines how things behave. And so we've got Einstein's theory of relativity saying the universe behaves or, or is governed by constant laws of physics, and we've got the Bible talking about a universe governed by constant laws of physics. So, that, so that's one place where you've got this harmony between what we see in creation and what we see in Scripture. Interestingly, when you look at Einstein's theory of general relativity, it generically predicts that the universe is dynamic. It's either expanding or contracting. Well, about 15 years later, after Einstein proposed this theory, Hubble measured the expansion of the universe, and again, when you go look at the scripture, you find that there are repeated passages where God is stretching out the heavens. Now, I'm not going to say that the, the biblical authors were thinking about the expansion of the universe, but that's very interesting terminology, that God is stretching out the heavens and we live in an expanding universe. And what you can show scientifically is that if general relativity is true, this idea embodied in the constant, or that embodies the constant laws of physics, and the universe is expanding, and there's mass in the universe, then there's a beginning to the universe. And so, scientifically speaking, we've got a universe governed by constant laws that's expanding, that is that has a beginning, and we find the Bible talking about a universe governed by constant laws that's expanding and has a beginning. So we find this corroboration between the two. They're both saying the same thing. Well, from a scientific perspective, the term that's used for a universe governed by constant laws that's expanding and has a beginning is the Big Bang. So while there's a lot of, I, I agree, there seems to be some angst in the Christian community about the Big Bang and what its implications are, I would argue that's the kind of universe the Bible is describing. And so this is a great, a powerful tool to argue that the God of the Bible is indeed the creator of the universe. And as far as I understand, initially there was a lot of pushback against Big Bang cosmology precisely because of its theological implications. Specifically for the implication of a beginning there. You know, that's Einstein proposed or inserted his uh, cosmological constant into his equations to get rid of the expansion and the need for a beginning. Um, even once it was shown that, yeah, the universe is expanding, you've got the steady state cosmology 
came about because it didn't have a beginning. And then the data said, no, there's a beginning. And then Mm -hmm. you've got the oscillating universe and even the multiverses, scientists trying to get around this need for a beginning. But it really does seem like the data in the universe relentlessly drives us back to the fact that there's a beginning. So you're right, there is this scientific pushback, at least by some scientists who don't like the implication of a beginning. But again, I find that very consistent with the way Scripture describes the universe. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution Show. Go to godsolutionshow.com. For more on the show, we're talking to Dr. Jeff Zwierink, an astrophysicist, about gravitational waves. For listeners listening right now, just to clarify, when someone, at least on this show, uses the phrase Big Bang or Big Bang cosmology, it's not to say that creation did not happen or God did not create the universe. In fact, we think that that scientific statement is actually truth about the universe. The universe had a beginning a finite time ago, and that's exactly what we read in Scripture, and we call it creation as Christians. So not really a big conflict. In fact, a lot of scientists would realize that that same beginning has theological implications. So what about this story right now? What does this verification of gravitational waves say about the beginning of the universe? Well, I mean, direct. it doesn't say anything directly except to the extent that it affirms general relativity as an accurate description of our universe. And so, again, you know, you can look at the Hawking-Penrose space-time theorems of, of general relativity are dependent upon the theory of general relativity being true. And so this affirms that the theory of general relativity is correct. But what it also shows that I think find very interesting is that space space and even time are dynamic. You know, again, you go back, let's say you go back into the 1800s, and Newtonian dynamics, or the, the physics of Isaac Newton were, were what reigned supreme there. In that view, space and time are these absolute quantities. Things move through space, but space is just this thing that is just there. there nothing affects it. And time is the same way. Well, when Einstein proposed this theory of general relativity, what it means is there's this dynamic nature to space and time, that how you move through space affects how time behaves. Space and time can be deformed. Space and time can expand and contract, uh, these sorts of things. And it's, it's that idea that actually leads to the implication that there's a beginning to the universe. And so measuring these ripples in space-time show that space and time is dynamic, and, and can be deformed, and so that just further strengthens this idea that there's actually a beginning. Time and space aren't just eternal things that might exist, but they're dynamic. They actually had a beginning to them. And the fact that we can measure this warping of space-time or the gravitational radiation, I mean, aside from being a technologically incredible achievement, it just really strongly reinforces that space and time are not eternal. They're dynamic, they're changing, and they had a beginning. Incredible. Okay, so now you've alluded to this before, but just to summarize, how does this strengthen the case for a creator? Well, if general relativity is correct, then the universe is governed by constant laws of physics and specifics, or you know, the equations of general relativity. Given the measurement of the expansion of the universe by Hubble in 1929, and that has been repeatedly confirmed over the last 80 years, we know that we live in an expanding universe covered by constant laws. One of those laws is that there, the amount of usable energy in the universe is decaying. Uh, you know, we talk about entropy as the common way or the, the term that's used there. 
But we live in a universe governed by constant laws of physics that is expanding, that's undergoing decay, and those three things coupled together lead to a beginning. Well, again, when you look at the Bible, this doctrine of creation ex nihilo, that God created the universe out of nothing, is one of those things that signifies that God is the creator, that there's nothing that impinges on his sovereignty, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so we've got, scientifically speaking, it's a very reasonable thing to say that the universe has a beginning. And so that supports what the Bible has to say about the universe. So you've got God's revelation in creation that we understand through science matches his revelation through Scripture, which we understand through theology. Incredible. Most of you have heard on this show before, we've discussed the cosmological argument for God's existence, which kind of goes like this. It says everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. And this is just more scientific confirmation of the beginning of the universe. And so we see both from logic and philosophy and science and even history as far as Earth and universe go, that the universe had a cause and that that cause was greater than the universe itself, namely God. Pretty incredible stuff. Um, so are it, there, really, it really is. I agree. So are there any interesting tidbits that you know about this that maybe we don't know or we're not aware of or maybe just haven't considered? Well, I would say one uh, interesting tidbit about this, uh, again, going back to the part of why I think the Big Bang is seen as a difficult thing in Christian circles is that it sounds like, well, okay, scientists have an explanation for the universe, therefore God's not involved. Well, again, when, when you look at what's, what the, the very philosophical principles embodied in general relativity, it's that the universe behaves incredibly reliably, that, that it's very predictable, there's no deviations, it's governed by these constant laws of physics. Well, again, when you look at things from a scriptural standpoint, um, often, you know, when, I, when I go back and look how I was thinking when I was in college, I often thought of God as, okay, created the universe, put these laws of physics on top, and then kind of stands back and watches. Well, it turns out that as I've grown in my theological sophistication and knowledge that the, you know, God upholds creation, that if he were to withdraw his hand, it would simply tumble into non-existence. And so the fact that we're measuring that creation behaves so reliably is a reflection of how reliable and consistent God is. And so what that means is that when we find explanations for how things work, what we're finding is we're actually getting a greater understanding of how God has revealed himself through creation, that the Bible talks about a God who is unchangeable, immutable, and reliable, and creation talks about a God who is reliable, unchangeable, and, reli or, and, and immutable. And so, uh, you know, just even the fact that we can have these scientific explanations is a remarkable thing, and it reflects that God exists. Wow. And, I, and I think that's just, that, that to me gives me great confidence in being a Christian who's a scientist, that I'm doing something noble because I'm understanding God's revelation in creation. A lot of people have talked about the reality that the predictability of the universe, which is necessary for science, is itself evidence for God. And what you're saying is that very predictability, which we're now able to measure in a way that we've never been able to measure before, just incredibly precisely shows us that we have a God that so carefully holds this entire universe in his hands, and we can trust him with whatever we're going through. Uh, kind of a, a fascinating tidbit to pull out of 
what we're learning here. So it really is, and there's one other aspect uh-huh. that I think is, is fascinating. That you know what, what we're what what the people who built this LIGO is the the instrument they were using to measure these gravitational waves. They are measuring changes in the fabric of space that are smaller than one thousandth the width of a proton. Wow! I mean, technologically, it's just un, almost unparalleled in what we're measuring there. And to think about how not only is the universe governed by these constant laws that are orderly and regular, but God has created us with the capacity to explore creation in that much detail. You know, and kind of a parallel would be, you know, imagine what could happen if you could know, you know, just intimately the culture which Moses, when he was writing the books, or writing down the books of uh, the, the Pentateuch, the more you know about that, the more you're, you're going to deeply appreciate what's being said in those books. Well, the more precisely we can measure creation, the deeper knowledge and appreciation we get for the Creator. And, you know, again, it's a technologically just fascinating accomplishment what they've been able to do. Unfathomable. All right, so kind of veering off track a little bit. That's all been exciting, but it's not every day that I have an astrophysicist on the phone. So let me ask you a little bit about dark energy and dark matter. I know that the universe is expanding. We just talked about that, and that points to the beginning of the universe. But my question would be, how do dark energy and dark matter relate to the expansion of the universe? Uh, they do so in two different ways. And so um, you know, the, these are both, I would say, dark matter and dark energy, that if you go back uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, the idea that there, these two things might be out there would have just been bizarre. And, and they are bizarre, but the data says they exist. And so um, what dark matter is, uh, you know, and I have to say here, as a general rule, scientists don't come up with very original names for things. As you might expect, dark matter is matter that is dark. And what I mean by that is, um, when we look at a building or look at a star, it's giving off electromagnetic radiation. It's giving off light of some form. And that's what allows us to see it, is we can build detectors that are sensitive to electromagnetic radiation, whether that be visible light or gamma rays or radio waves, whatever. It's, that's all for electromagnetic radiation. Dark matter, on the other hand, is something that has mass, but it doesn't give off any electromagnetic radiation. And so that makes it incredibly difficult to find, if you will. Now, because it has mass, it has a gravitational pull associated with it, and we can look out in various places. We can look in galaxies. We can look in clusters of galaxies, even within our solar system, and find evidence, the gravitational evidence, of a great deal of mass, but we don't find any light coming from it. And, in fact, this amount of mass that's out there is, you know, of, of all the atoms and electrons and protons that make up us and everything we experience day in and day out, even as we look out into the heavens, the dark matter is six times larger. There's six times more dark matter than there is normal matter wow. in the universe. So that has the dominant gravitational behavior. That, that's what gravitationally dominates the behavior of the universe. So that's what dark matter is. And how is that related to the expansion of the universe? Well, the more mass there is, mass actually will slow down the expansion of the universe. And, you know, so if we're, you know, one of the ways we can try and figure out what's going to go on in the future of the universe is to 
go out and observe and figure out how much mass there is in the universe and ask, is there enough mass to slow down and stop the universe, the expansion of the universe, so that it might contract and bounce back on itself or something like that. And what we can definitively show is that there's not enough mass in the universe to cause that to happen. So barring anything, any change in the laws of physics, the universe is just going to expand forever. If I'm understanding things correctly, WMAP measurements confirm that we are in a geometrically flat universe. I'm not even smart enough to totally understand all that that means. But basically what you just said, we're not going to have a cyclical model that a lot of people would try to use to get out of a beginning where God is the creator of all. Is that correct? Essentially, that's what's going on with the dark matter, yes. You know, we, we were hoping that there was, or back in the 80s when I was in school, there was the hope that we would find enough mass to show that the universe is going to collapse back on itself and then rebound. And what, even with the dark matter, we've now quantified that, and we know that there's not enough matter, dark matter or normal matter, to cause the universe to contract on itself. Even further, the dark energy that you alluded to, that's a whole different animal. We, wow. we have a good idea what the dark matter might be. We have no clue what the dark energy is, but what the dark energy we, we can measure that it's there. We can measure its effect on the universe. And what its effect is, is it's, it causes the universe to expand faster and faster over time. So it's kind of like a, a putting the foot on, or dark energy puts its foot on the accelerator of the universe, that the expansion gets faster and faster and faster over time. And so you take the dark energy, the normal, or the, the dark matter, the normal matter, and the dark energy, and you add all that up, and that gives you this geometrically flat universe fascinating all right i have about a minute left but i just got to ask should we be afraid of uh the multiverse theory the short answer is no <laughs> you can go look at my book who's afraid of the multiverse to get the long answer but going back to your discussion about the cosmological argument the multiverse supports the idea that there's a beginning the multiverse supports the idea that there's a designer or fine-tuning in the universe and a designer and so you know go to reasons.org uh, click on the microphone, you get more information about that. Uh, but no, you don't have to be afraid of the multiverse. It actually <laughs> makes the case for a creator even stronger. You know, Geisler and Turk even put it this way. I, be, I believe it was Geisler and Turk. They said, if multiverse is true, uh, the atheist is in, even, is in an even bigger conundrum because you can't disprove God in universes that we can't even access. And if there were a God in one of those universes, by default, he'd be God over all universes. So it actually becomes uh, the last nail in the coffin of atheism if it proves to be true. So, Very good point. I mean, it looks like it's a, initially I perceived it as a threat to Christianity, but it provides strong scientific, philosophical, theological arguments that the God of the Bible really does exist. Fascinating. Well, anything that you'd like to share before we get off the show? I, I just want to say one last final comment about these gravitational waves. Uh -huh. uh, one thing that I find incredibly cool about this is that in this event that we detected, the amount of energy given off in gravitational waves was 50 times more than all of the stars in the universe put together. Wow. So we just witnessed the most powerful explosion ever observed in the universe. Wow. We serve a very powerful God. Fascinating. Dr. Jeff Swearink, thank you so much for being on the God Solution Show. Thanks. Enjoy the opportunity to talk to you, Nate. We'll have you on again. All right, talk to you later, Nate. You bet. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the show with Dr. Jeff Zwerink. As he concluded, we serve a mighty God. 
and all of this evidence for the beginning of the universe and for God himself as creator of the universe points to a message that each of us need to hear. And that message is that God is all-powerful, and at the same time, he loves each and every one of us individually. He loves us so much that he died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven and reunited, reconciled with God. The reality is that you can do that today by putting your faith and trust in Jesus, and you can verbalize that faith through prayer. If you've never taken that step to begin a relationship with Christ through faith, I would encourage you to do that right now and to verbalize that saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Please come into my life. Please be my Savior and my Lord. Please make me the kind of person that you want me to be. I hope that if you haven't taken that step, you'll take that step this very morning. Please go to GodSolutionShow.com and get our past interviews and past shows while you're there. Also look at a list of local churches that you could visit and find some other resources there. Definitely leave comments if you'd like to tell me a little bit about what you're thinking about the show. And stay tuned in. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Gary Habermas about the evidence for the resurrection in the coming weeks. Well, thank you so much for listening. Continue to share the show with your friends and tell people about the show. And definitely, if you want to help expand the show and keep it on the air even, you could do that at GodSolutionsShow.com as well. As always, thank you so much for listening. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.